Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Now this morning, we are uh, invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with you to 1 Corinthians 14. We, we finished our study of chapter 13 last Sunday, and we are pivoting to the application of all those things in chapter 14. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 kind of becoming a, a solid unit of, of argumentation by Paul as he gives us the overview of spiritual gifts, the priority and necessity of love in chapter 13, and now he's going to begin to apply those things. But before we get into any of that, um, there, uh, I, I do feel like we need to um, do a deeper dive on the understanding the gift of prophecy and how we, to think about, how we are to think about that. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. I, I don't know if you call this a sermon so much as it is um, a historical review and argumentation for a, an, inter, an interpretation of prophecy that um, I think has been very confused over the years. And so I think there are very few issues that have been as much of a lightning rod of controversy uh, for the evangelical church in the past 50 to 100 years as this issue of spiritual gifts and their role within the church. With the rise in the early 1900s of Pentecostalism and the subsequent you know, charismatic revival in the 60s and the broader charismatic movement in the latter part of the 20th century, there came a tremendous emphasis in that time frame on the gift of tongues and of prophecy. And those things became uh, front and center as both necessary in those contexts, as both necessary and normative expressions of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of the church. And that, that debate, that issue, prompted uh, sharp lines to be drawn within uh, you know, the evangelical world. Uh, there were those like us who are termed cessationists in terms of we understand the, we are those who teach that the miraculous gifts have ceased, and, and then there's this uh, dividing line between us and those who would consider themselves continuationists who argue that the miraculous gifts are uh, in operation in some way, shape, or form in the present. The last 40 years, um, I think it would be fair to say, have seen some of those lines become blurred in the church uh, by the explosion of what has sometimes been called the signs and wonder movement or the third wave movement that began in the 70s, late 70s, continued on into the 1980s and 90s, championed by the likes of individuals like uh, Peter Wagner, John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement and some of the pastoral training influence that has cranked out pastors and and theological writers uh, under the influence of Fuller Theological Seminary. Peter Wagner, who was a professor of church growth at Fuller, is largely credited with coming up with this term third wave when he labeled the rise of Pentecostalism in the 20th century in the early 1900s, or 19, yeah, 1900s as the first wave. And then he spoke of the subsequent rise of the charismatic movement, the renewal movement in the 60s as the second wave, and then he described what he viewed as the present, it, it, what was his, for him the present, signs and wonders movement, he described that as the third wave of the Holy Spirit. Wagner is quoted as saying, I see the third wave of the 80s as an opening of the straight-line evangelicals and other Christians to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that the Pentecostals and Charismatics have experienced, but without becoming either Charismatic or Pentecostal, end quote. So he, by his own description, and 
others like him. The third wave movement has been a prying open, if you will, of the evangelical world to make space for a view of the miraculous gifts, particularly tongues and prophecy that was not present um, before that in church history. It has exerted, this third wave movement has exerted a powerful influence over the practice of the contra- these controversial gifts and particularly prophecy that really a now a novel brand of prophecy has become standardized among many of our church uh, evangelical brothers and sisters with some well-respected church leaders attempting to kind of carve out a, a middle way, if you will, between the cessationist and the continuationist viewpoints. <clears throat> and I, I bring this to us this morning by way of kind of historical tracing and thinking through these things, not to point fingers and not to undermine people's, uh, our love for, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but one uh, particular individual who I've utmost respect for and has done some wonderful work of theolog- theological writing, but whom, with whom we have a disagreement, I think, on this issue. Uh, the most influential of those theologians searching out a middle way has been Wayne Grudem. So if you're familiar, he has a systematic theology that's very well known. Um, it was one that we used in seminary, and I highly recommend it. Grudem's theological writing on the gift of prophecy over the years have has made significant inroads in both continuationist circles and in cessationist circles alike. Consequently, then, his efforts with respect to the gift of prophecy are now really the main theological foundation um, for the present day, what what I would call the convergence of historical biblical Christianity with modern charismatic practice. Those two have kind of become fused together in many circles. So Grudem espouses essentially a unique view and definition of prophecy. What is this view of prophecy and how does it, why does it matter? Well, basically he puts forward a view of prophecy in the New Testament that straddles both worlds. Uh, and I'm going to quote him because this is his, what he has written and I, feel, I want to be fair to his argument. He says in this book, which is a book he wrote on the topic of prophecy, he's done some dissertation work as well on this. He says, in this book, I'm suggesting an understanding of the gift of prophecy, which would require a bit of modification in the views of each of these groups, meaning those who think the gifts have ceased and those who don't. He says, I'm asking that charismatics go on using the gift of prophecy, but that they stop calling it, quote unquote, a word from the Lord, simply because that label makes it sound like the Bible in its authority and leads to much misunderstanding. On the other side, he says, I am asking that those in the cessationist camp to give serious thought to the possibility that prophecy is ordinary New Testament church, in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to Scripture in authority, but was simply a human and sometimes partially mistaken reporting of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. And I am asking that they think again about those arguments for the cessation of certain gifts. He goes on to say, I should make it very clear at the beginning that I am not saying that the charismatic and cessationist views are mostly wrong. Rather, I think they are mostly right in the things they count essential. And I think an adjustment in how they understand the nature of prophecy, especially its authority, has the potential for bringing about a resolution to this issue, which would safeguard items that both sides see as crucial. End quote. So, I know it's a long quote, but Grudem is not shying away from the fact that he is proposing a novel, a new 
compromised, I guess, definition of New Testament prophecy, and that he hopes, quote, both pro-charismatic and anti-charismatics may be able to find a middle ground with considerable potential for reconciling their current differences. His argument is essentially that cessationists are right to say with the close of the canon, meaning the scripture being complete, that there's no prophecy that can compete with the inerrant and infallible authoritative word of God. But he also wants to acknowledge that the charismatics are correct to say that prophecy includes the spontaneous, powerful working of the Spirit, bringing things to mind when the church is gathered for worship, giving edification, encouragement, and comfort. That's his quote. So basically, he's saying those exercising the gifts of prophecy in the church today are quote-unquote, speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind, and these prophecies did not have the authority of the words of the Lord. So he's basically saying that New Testament prophets, individuals in Corinth, as Paul's writing, and those who exercise the supposed gift of prophecy today are sometimes accurate in the things that they say, and sometimes they're not. It was his, it is his argument that only New Testament apostles, those are the only ones who spoke God-breathed prophetic words, while everyone else's words, while he would label them prophecy, were not spoken with absolute divine authority. If you're thinking to yourself, well, that seems to create two tiers of prophecy, that's exactly what it does. In fact, he even concedes that argument in some other writings. It has the effect of creating two tiers of prophecy, basically non-authoritative congregational prophecy and authoritative apostolic prophecy. He argues that the apostles, not the New, Test- uh, not the New Testament prophets, like in a general sense, but the apostles were the true successors of the Old Testament prophets, and that the apostles, like their Old Testament counterparts, are the only ones who spoke with divine inspired authority. So his position is that only the general content of prophecy nowadays is reliable, and he allows for partial errors. He says, you know, these words did not have the authority of the words of God. So according to his thesis, there is a fundamental difference in quality between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy in terms of its accuracy and its authority. And the net result is to define the gift of prophecy in the church now as a spirit, basically nothing more than a spirit-prompted utterance that may well contain um, not all error, but some error. So the question becomes, and and, and I bring this to us because this is incredibly um, widespread in its understanding. The question becomes, is this middle way proposed by Grudem and affirmed by others, is this middle way consistent with how the early church understood the gift of prophecy? That's what I want us to think about this morning. Or has a definition which has be this definition that he gives, this middle way definition, has be, if it has become more popular now because it is shaped you know, the question is, has that become more popular because it's been shaped by the charismatic influences of our contemporary era? And what we're going to argue this morning, what I'm going to argue this morning, is that his view, this view of non-authoritative prophecy, has indeed been shaped out of, charis- out of the charismatic movement of our contemporary era and is out of step historically with how the church has consistently viewed the New Testament gift of Prophecy. So last week, I made the argument at the end of our sermon that 
the miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecy, um, healing, interpretation of tongues, and those things have ceased on the basis of their nature and purpose. In other words, they, they, were, they were given to the church to reveal and confirm the word and will of God. And when God's word was fully revealed and when it was written down on the pages of Scripture, and the church had that prophetic word made more sure, we said their purpose and their nature, their reason for existing stopped, and so they ceased. That was my argument last week. What I want to do this week, I want to call another witness to the stand, if you will, that I think strengthens the cessationist, our position, and that is the witness of church history. Before we dive into chapter 14 in detail and start to really unpack the text and what Paul's getting at, where Paul argues for the superiority of prophecy over tongues, we need to make sure that we have the same definition of prophecy that Paul does. We need to make sure that we have the same understanding of prophetic utterance and what that entails that the early church did. Otherwise, we can't possibly hope to make any sense or application out of what he's going to tell us in these verses. And so that's why I'm bringing this up. My goal is not to poke the bear. My, my goal is not to rile people up or to... I, I don't really enjoy being more polemical in terms of arguing position, but I think it's important for us to understand these things because if we can't have a consistent, biblically informed definition of prophecy, then we can't really do much with chapter 14. Now, to help us make heads or tails of the contemporary debate surrounding spiritual gifts, it would be helpful to ask, was there ever a time in... Um, Church history, was there ever a time in church history when a similar controversy about the spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of prophecy, is there ever a time when that, when that sprung up? And if such a controversy sprung up, how did the church respond to it when it did appear? And I think this is an important question to ask and answer for two reasons. One, it helps us understand why and how the church responded to disagreements surrounding spiritual gifts in the past. You know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and, and again throughout that book that there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing, nothing ultimately changes. There's, the same issues keep coming up again and again because human heart, human condition is so uh, reliably corrupt. And so it's entirely possible, indeed it's probable, that over the course of 2,000 years of church history, that there would probably have been some similar kind of debate or issue um, of the spiritual gifts. And the church has probably had to wrestle with that at some point. And so, you know, we'd ask ourselves, did that ever happen? And two, why it's important to ask and answer that question is it clarifies for us how did the church conceptualize New Testament prophecy and the gift of prophecy as a whole? If we can look to the past and see how the church addressed this issue, we'll understand how the church viewed prophecy and how they responded to it when it maybe was challenged, that view and definition of prophecy was challenged. And so, like I said, you know, was there ever a time in church history? And as providence would have it, there was a controversy concerning spiritual gifts that maybe we're not as familiar with in the early centuries of the church, and even more helpfully, is it's centered around this gift of prophecy, this debate. So why and how the early church responded to this controversy in their day then becomes, I think, an incredibly helpful guide for you and for me to inform us today how we should respond to contemporary debates of spiritual gifts 
in the church. So we're going to break this down into three parts. I want to explain the controversy, what it was. I want to explain what, how the early church responded, and I want to make some final applications. So that is kind of a simple um, uh, roadmap for where we're going. I want to begin by explaining the controversy, what, you know, because it's not one that as, is as familiar to us. Um, maybe if you've done some detailed study of church history, you've come across it, but um, it's not one that I think is, is ever really referenced that often. And that is the Montanist, M-O-N-T-A-N-I-S-T, Montanist, that's the name of the person who kind of started it off, controversy. The early church had its own charismatic challenge in the early second century with the rise of what, what's known as um, the Montanist crisis, or it was known by some as the Frisian or Cataphrygian heresy um, that began uh, in modern-day Turkey sometime around 165, 170 A.D., um, this teaching began in Asia Minor, Turkey, and it quickly took the Greco-Roman world by storm. And by the 200s AD, as far and as wide as North Africa, it had, it had spread and it lingered well into the 5th century. The movement was founded by a self-proclaimed prophet who identified as a Christian named Montanus. And he had two prophetesses who um, were kind of leaders with him uh, a woman by the name of Priscilla and another woman by the name of Maximilla. And they claimed, the three of them claimed that there was a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit in and among them that was prompting them to speak God's word. Montanus was a recent, relatively recent convert to Christianity when he first began claiming to be a prophet. And before his conversion, he was a priest of Apollo, kind of in that world. But after coming to Christ, he was convinced that God had called him as a prophet and that the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. His two female colleagues, Priscilla and Maximilla, their, um, their popularity actually ended up kind of outstripping even Montanus. Um, they also claimed this prophetic gift of the Holy Spirit, and the three of them often spoke uh, in ecstatic visions and urged their followers and there was quite a following to this, to fast and to pray so that they, as followers, might also share in similar revelations and this new movement of the Holy Spirit. So what you have then in the early, these early decades of the church is a group of people who held to the basic um, tenets of the Christian faith. This wasn't heretical in the sense of uh, they weren't denying the reality of Jesus Christ or the Trinity or any kind of foundational doctrines. They were claiming Christianity, they were claiming the faith, but they also claimed a revelatory experience of the Holy Spirit through this spontaneous gift of prophecy. And it, so the whole thing, Montanism from top to bottom was a controversy surrounded and centered on prophecy. And its followers believed that they were receiving divine revelation from the Spirit for, the, for that present age. Those who adhered to Montanism called themselves spiritual people over against those who rejected their, um, their teaching, and they claimed that those who rejected their teaching were natural people, kind of borrowing that language from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and chapter 3, excuse me. If all of this sounds, sounds strangely familiar, it is because it bears a striking similarity to the sudden emergence of Pentecostalism. If you know the history of Pentecostal theology, Pentecostalism arose in the early 1900s um, with 
William Seymour and the Azusa Street Revival and Charles Parham and some of these folks. Um, but that movement centered not on prophecy, but on tongues, tongues being the sort of um, a third work of grace uh, in the church. That's what they taught. And so Pentecostalism was initially focused on tongues. So that is the controversy kind of in a short summary form. So the second question is, what was the early church's response to this? to this um, challenge, this charismatic challenge. You know, we need to ask ourselves, how did the church respond to this sudden emergence of prophetic revelation through Montanus, Priscilla, Maximilla, and the people that were following them? And the, what becomes clear as you look at the historical witness of the early church fathers is that they rejected it. They rejected it. And I want us to look at three individuals um, through the lens of some... Um, remaining uh, older writings. The first is from, uh, it's not written, he wasn't the witness to it, but he wrote about it, which is Eusebius. If you know anything about church history, he was the bishop of Caesarea. He was a church historian. He wrote a a well-known history of the church called Ecclesiastical History in um, the 300s AD. And he goes back and he references all kinds of different sources and describes different things. And Eusebius addresses what he calls... uh, or he addresses this whole issue of Montanism, and he describes it in his ecclesiastical history as a strange heresy. And he says that many learned men of the time confronted it and left behind abundant material for history, showing how it departed from the apostolic faith. One of Eusebius's sources, who he named simply Anonymous, declared Montanism, quote, a lie and not, as they call it, prophecy, but rather, as will be shown, false prophecy. This source of his wrote, He, Montanus, began to be ecstatic and to speak and to talk strangely, prophesying contrary to the custom which belongs to the tradition and succession of the church from the beginning. Of those who heard these illegitimate utterances, some were vexed, thinking that he was possessed by a devil and a spirit of error and was disturbing the populace. They rebuked him and forbade him to speak, remembering the distinction made by the Lord and his warning to keep watchful guard against coming false prophets. I want you to notice then that the early church in mass, and and I'm not saying that not because I've quoted a bunch of different people, but because there's multiple sources that affirm this. They rebuked what is essentially a novel and new movement of prophetic utterance that was put forward by Montanus and his followers. And it's worth noting why they confronted it. Again, this is important for our understanding. Why did they confront it? And the standard they used to reject Montanus's prophesying was, he says, con- because it ran contrary to the custom which belongs to the, to the tradition and succession for the church from the beginning. From the beginning, meaning most likely the pattern established in the prophetic eras of the Old and New Testaments. So he's appealing to Christ's warning in Matthew 7 and verse 15 about false prophets and watching out for those who speak falsely as if from God. He, the church, rejected Montanus and Montanism because it was out of step with the church's collective understanding of the gift of prophecy itself, which we'll see later had ceased. Additionally, they rejected, another reason why they rejected Montanism was because it was out of step with the way in which the Old Testament and New Testament prophets exercised their gifts. He says, quote, the false prophet speaks in ecstasy. 
after which follow ease and freedom from fear. But they, the Montanists, cannot show that any prophet, either of those in the Old Testament or those in the New, was inspired in this way. For Eusebius' source then, this anonymous writer, the biblical pattern of prophecy was the standard to examine any claim of prophecy. So ecstatic, irrational prophesying violated the scriptural standards, like we'll see as we get into chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, that prophecy should be communicated in an orderly and rational manner, like we see in verses 30 to 33. So the the way in which these prophecies were coming forward discredited them in the eyes of the church. Another refutation, a third refutation by this anonymous source to Montanism related to the fulfillment of prophecy. Maximilla, and then there were others, prophecies. I'm just kind of giving you one that it's mentioned. Maximilla had made predictions that hadn't come true. Um, He cataloged these predictions. He says, in which she foretold future wars and revolutions that did not come to pass. He goes on to say, had it not been made obvious already that this is another lie, for it is more than 13 years today since the woman died. She, she didn't live that long. This woman, Maximilla, died. And that there has been in the world neither local or universal war, but rather, by the mercy of God, continuing peace for Christians. So for the early church, the biblical standard of a true prophet was that their predictions, if they made predictions, were fulfilled, that they would come true which, of course, had always been God's standards in both the Old and the New Testament. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 18 for a moment, because in Deuteronomy 18, God gives us the test for a prophet. He does the same in chapter 13 as well, but chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18 and verse 20 to 22, it's a little more succinct. And Moses writes, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, meaning God's name, which I have not commanded him to speak, so he's a false prophet, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how do we know if he's a true or a false prophet? And God says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. And again, in chapter 13, he says the same thing. If they speak falsely, if they say things that will happen that don't come to pass, then you know that they are a false prophet. And again, if we look back at our text, which we'll get into again next Sunday in detail, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 29, when a prophet was to speak in the church, he says, let the others, other prophets, pass judgment. In other words, there was a standard in which they were to be evaluated. True prophets spoke true words and made real predictions that came to pass. So I bring all this up to say the early church did not have any concept of a hybrid prophecy that was kind of true or mostly true, but also included some error or things that were not accurate as Grudem and others have claimed. The New Testament standard of prophecy was, in fact, the same standard of Old Testament prophetic work, which was truthfulness and accuracy. So Eusebius references this anonymous source, but he also references another source who was um, 
around about 30 to 40 years um, after the time of Montanus, and his name is Apollonius. Apollonius is kind of another witness. And he refuted Montanism as well by pointing out um, some of the other things that we just mentioned, but also the character and the lifestyle of these individuals, Montanus, Priscilla, and Maximilla. This individual uh, writing against Montanism said, the deeds and the teachings of this recent teacher show his character. It is he who taught the annulment of marriage. He's referring to the fact that um, uh, these two women divorced their husbands once they kind of became swept up in this movement. And it is he who taught the annulment of marriage and appointed collectors of money who organized the receiving of gifts under the name of offerings, who provided salaries for those who preached his doctrine in order that its teaching would prevail through gluttony. He says, we will show that their so-called prophets and martyrs make gain not only from the rich, but from the poor and from the orphans and the widows. And so, he goes on, Apollonius does, to allude to Matthew 12 and verse 33, where Jesus says, you know, the tree, make the tree good and its fruit good, or it's bad and its fruit bad. And he alludes to Matthew 7, again, Jesus in his words, and he scrutinizes the activities of Montanus and his followers with Scripture. He says, those who claim to be prophets, but whose lives brought forth the bad fruit of, of, of disobedience, they did not correspond to script that didn't correspond to scripture, they were to be rejected outright. Once again, what we see then is that for the early church, there were two kinds of prophets, those who were true and those who were false. There was no middle ground, nor was there any concept of a true prophet whose words and activities flagrantly contradicted the scriptures. There's a third witness that uh, is referenced, and he comes later, Eusebius, through his anonymous source and Apollonius were two of the earlier witnesses that refuted Montanism. And that all sprung up in the late hundreds and 200s AD. But a third witness is a man by the name of Epiphanius. Epiphanius. In uh, AD 375, he wrote a three-volume work entitled um, Panarion, which detailed all the false te teachings that were surrounding Christianity at that time. It's kind of like a heresiology. <laughs> It's like categorizing all these different false teachings. And in book two, he deals with Montanism, which was very much alive and kicking at that time. And he follows similar lines of argumentation, which we're not going to revisit, that we've already covered. Things like their lifestyle and their ecstatic um, speech and things like that and, and whatnot. But he also adds one additional way in which our understanding, is, I think, is sharpened. He draws... He draws a distinction between the true church's view of spiritual gifts and the Montanist understanding of spiritual gifts. This man, Epiphanius, says the, they boast they boast of having Montanus as a prophet and Priscilla and Maximilla from prophetesses as prophetesses and have lost their wits by paying heed to them. They have separated themselves by giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils and saying that we must receive gifts of grace as well. So he's arguing, their argument was that we need to have uh, others, other Christians must have this reception of the gifts like they have. He says, God's holy church also received gifts of grace, he says, but they are the real gifts which have already been tried in God's holy church 
through the Holy Spirit and by prophets and apostles and the Lord himself. So what Epiphanius is saying is clear. The Montanist practice of spiritual gifts, it differed sharply from the genuine manifestation of the gifts as was understood in the church at that time. He's saying we do have a reception of the gifts, but they are the real gifts. They are distinct from what you're seeing in this group. How does he know that? Well, he says the true church's exercising of the gifts corresponded to that of the apostles and the prophets. To put it another way, there was no room in the mind of the early church for a new category of second tier, if you will, non-authoritative prophecy. Either you stood in the tradition of the prophetic eras of the Old and New Testaments, or you were a false prophet. Epiphanius specifically cited 1 John 4 and verse 1 that says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He goes on to say, By comparing what they have said with the teachings of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which are true, and which have been delivered and prophesied in truth, he says, let us determine which is real prophecy and which is false. So how did the Montanists reply to these charges that they were false prophets, that their words and actions didn't fit the biblical pattern? What did they say in response to that? He says they chose to reply, the first gifts are not like the last ones. In other words, they were forced to concede their point, that what you're seeing in us is not the same gift of prophecy that is described in the Old Testament. They were basically saying, well, it's a different kind of prophecy that's in operation in our midst today. So why was the early church so skeptical? Why were they so quick to reject Montanism and to attack their claims of speaking for God? with the prophetic gift. Well, if you lay aside the material excesses and the ecstatic behavior and the inaccurate prophecies and the contradictions to clear biblical teachings, one reason the early church was so skeptical of the church's cons- was, was the church's consensus in the second century that the gift of prophecy had ceased. One of the first direct references to the early church's belief regarding the gifts particularly the gift of prophecy, we have in what's known as the Mora, Mura, I don't know if it's Mura, Muratorian fragment. You may have heard of that. The Muratorian fragment is dated to around the time of Montanus, 150 to 170 AD. And this fragment contains the oldest, it's, it's well known because it contains the oldest existing lists of the canonical books of the New Testament. Maybe Sun will cover that next week. I don't know. But this work, this fragment, refers to both apostles and prophets and states explicitly that the number of prophets is complete, indicating an end to prophetic expression. And that is why, for example, in the second century, the Shepherd of Hermas, which is a, is a you know, it's a, it's a book that I think has biblical truth in it, there was debate, is, is this scripture, is this book, what we go on as the Shepherd of Hermas, is that, a, is that also God's word? And that was rejected as holy scripture by the church. And the reason is this, it says it, the Shepherd of Hermas, cannot be read publicly to the people in church, either among the prophets, whose number is complete, nor among the apostles, for it is after their time. 
And by prophets and apostles, he's meaning, you know, Old Testament, New Testament. He says their number is complete, and of the apostles, it says it cannot be added for it is after the time of the apostles. So both of those gifts are, have ceased. The text of the Shepherd of Hermas was written around the same time, but it wasn't on the same level as the other canonical books in Scripture because it was a recent writing, and the reason for rejecting it was in the mind of the church, prophecy had ceased with the death of the last apostle, John. And so again, what you see then is a clear testimony in the middle, by the middle of the second century and probably much sooner than that, but for sure by the middle of the second century, that the prophetic gift was understood to have ceased and the focus had shifted to apostolic doctrine and the study of Scripture as the authoritative source of divine revelation and the true knowledge of God. That leads to our third point. What is the present-day application for us? We asked at the outset why And how did the church respond to this disagreement around spiritual gifts like those that the Montanist controversy? And the answer, I think, is clear. First, the early church rejected it. They rejected Montanism outright. They didn't embrace it. They did not tolerate it. They did not accommodate their views of prophecy to claim that both sides were mostly right. Their rejection of Montanism and its novel approach to the gift of prophecy was based upon the church's careful examination of the biblical criteria for the prophet of God that is contained in both the Old and New Testaments. And when the charismatic challengers attempted to claim that there was a distinction in their foreprophecy of the Old and New Testaments, the early church dismissed those attempts and affirmed that there was direct continuity between the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament and that the absolute divine authority was necessary when they spoke. So prophets who prophesied incorrectly, prophets who spoke things that were false, that did not come to pass, were just in the New Testament, just as they were in the Old Testament, false prophets. There was no middle ground. There was no genuine prophets whose utterances were kind of true or mostly true, but also containing errors. A second thing, that just kind of by way of summary, the early church also found the Montanist so-called prophecy was incongruent with the biblical witness concerning rationality. Genuine prophets were rational. They spoke with their mind and spirit fully engaged. Montanist prophets, on the other hand, so genuine prophets spoke rationally. Montanist prophets, on the other hand, were ecstatic and irrational, which is a clear violation of chapter 14, verse 33 of 1 Corinthians, where it says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, and all things are to be done properly and in order. And the appeal of the early church was, look at how God worked through the mouths of the prophets of old, men like Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and John the Baptist and Paul and John the apostle and the other apostles. They received the word from the Lord and they communicated it clearly and they communicated it rationally with their mind and faculties intact. They received it and they spoke it or wrote it. 
This is distinct. And how, this is always how God's prophets worked. Thirdly, the early church recognized the authoritative nature of New Testament prophets and prophecy. They viewed the Montanists as a real and present danger to the church because of the unspoken authority that's vested within any purported word is coming from the Lord. You say the Lord says this, that comes with a level of authority, whether you want it to or not. And these folks took and I believe maybe were Christians, but they claimed Christ. They held these witnesses right. They held to many orthodox doctrines, but they also spoke things that contradicted the clear teaching of Scripture and made claims and predictions that were inaccurate and did not come to pass. And the church perceived this then what was essentially a diminished view of prophecy. They viewed that as leading God's people astray, as disturbing the peace and unity of the church. So what is the, what is the present-day application for you and for me? Why does this matter? Why are we going to all these details and digging up all these ancient quotations from Eusebius and, and these other ancient writers? Well, a couple of things. Well, a few things. First, why and how the early church responded to this controversy, Montanism, in the 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, it reveals why and how the church ought to respond to novel views of prophecy put forward now. Rather than searching out some kind of middle way that tries to appease both sides, we need to be graciously but clear that the, and reaffirm the biblical view of the prophetic gift that has been held from the beginning, really, and has been reaffirmed as it was in the second century by those who spoke against Montanism. So we need to be clear and hold fast to biblical conviction. Secondly, we need to let the scriptures, this is a practical application for all of us, we need to let the scriptures interpret the truthfulness of experiences and not let experiences interpret the truthfulness of scripture. There's a big difference. I can't tell you how many times I have reasoned with some of our more charismatic-leaning brothers or sisters from the scriptures in an attempt to help them understand that something that happened to them may not have been immediately from the Lord or that some decision they're making may not be wise. And I have been met at the end of all of that explanation with some version of, well, I know what I felt. Or I still feel like God's telling me to do X or Y. I remember years ago, there was an individual here at our church who claimed a very weird kind of um, subjective experience of conversion in which God spoke to him and all these crazy things happened and that's how he came to Jesus. But there was nothing about sin or repentance or Christ or faith. It was just it's all about this weird kind of out-of-body experience that he had. And when we explained to him that maybe that's not a genuine work of the Holy Spirit, and that maybe you don't understand the gospel. You know, we went around and around and around, and by the end of the conversation, that's literally how it ended. He says, well, I know what happened to me. Wasn't willing to reevaluate his experience in light of Scripture. And we need to be careful not to let subjective impressions or emotionally charged experiences lead us around as if directed from the Lord. We have to test those things against the word of Scripture, the standard, 
If you don't do that, you will, I promise you, you will spend your days being tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, like a ship without an anchor. So we must let the scriptures interpret the reality of our experiences and not let our experiences interpret the truthfulness or whether or not we're going to accept the truth of scripture. Thirdly, there is clear evidence from the middle of the second century onward that the time of the apostles and prophets was widely accepted as having ceased, as past. God's special revelation to man was complete and contained within the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, and his divine power, as Peter says, has granted us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. The scripture, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 17, is sufficient to make the spirit-filled man or woman complete, perfect, equipping us for every good work. And so when Paul says that in the church, as he will say as we get into chapter 14, pursue love, yet desire spiritual gifts, or that which pertains to the spirit, but especially that you may prophesy, we need to understand what the content of that is for the church today. It is not some non-authoritative congregational prophecy that has kernels of truth, but also is mixed with error. And it is not the subjective impressions purported to be from the Holy Spirit that you speak over somebody, as we see in so many contexts. And it's definitely not some kind of out-of-body ecstatic experience that's blurted out in some kind of manic frenzy or some kind of really bizarre, nebulous prediction spoken by a self-professed prophet whose character and life contradict the biblical pattern of godly leadership. It's not any of those things. And so it is, prophecy then is the more sure prophetic word of Scripture itself, rightly divided. This then is the content of prophecy that we need to speak forth to men for edification, for exhortation, as Paul says in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 3, and for consolation. The word of God is what we need. It was necessary for the early church for prophecy to be um, brought forward in the corporate gathering because they didn't have the scriptures. But we have the prophetic word, Paul, uh, Peter says, made more sure. It's even more sure than his experiences. And we can go to that word and we can proclaim that word. And he's, he's going to show here, that's what we need to do. Uh, that's what we need to herald in the corporate gathering for the edification of the church. And so that is why we preach and teach the word of God and read it and pray it and seek to bring our life and practice underneath its authority. And the question remains, why do we even need prophecy now? What possible, what possible purpose could it serve? And if it is not universally available to all the church, then it can't possibly be something we can be held accountable for. And so it, at the end of the day, the only thing that we can fall back on that everyone has is what? The word of God. And so it makes no sense to me whatsoever that God would need to use anything but his word. Paul says it is the scripture, the, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. 
It is powerful. It is effective. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is God-breathed and it is profitable for everything we need, for equipping, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Like it's all there. What possible benefit could there be to having prophets making non-authoritative prophecy in the churches? Let's just call it what it is. It's just your subjective understanding of the word of God. It's not prophecy. And it may be true and it might be edifying and it might be beneficial. And so at the end of the day, as we come back to our text next Sunday, really, this is how we need to understand prophecy. And we need to filter those things through the lens of scripture. And this is where the witness of the church becomes so very, very helpful for us so that we understand things the way Paul does. And I think so much of the confusion over these chapters and over these gifts comes back to the reality that people are looking for experiences apart from the word of God. And we need to love one another and we need to, in the corporate gathering, build one another up as we speak the truth for edification, for exhortation, and comfort. That's what consolation is referring to, comfort and encouragement. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's powerful. It's effective. We don't need to go looking for God's word anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We, uh, we thank you that you have given us your word and you've given us your spirit to help us understand these things. You tell us the spirit will take of yours and give it to your people. And we find that word contained in scripture. I pray that we would be humble to acknowledge these things and come to your word and study it, and live it out and apply it. And that we would make the prophetic word spoken, read, preached in the church, we would make that word the content of our Lord's Day gatherings and that that would build up your body. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us not to err to the left or to the right, for we are just as vulnerable as all these individuals that we confronted and pulled apart this morning. We are just as vulnerable to making those errors except by the grace of God. So we ask your wisdom in that. We ask your uh, help us not to be pulled by experiences and the emotions and help us to filter those things through the truth and the lens of Scripture. May we test the spirits to see if they are from God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.